0: But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you come a ruler who will worship my people Israel. When Herod called the Magi secretly, then, Her- Sorry. then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way
1: Brittany told me this morning that uh, she was having lunch with Reese yesterday, just that I wasn't there. And um, Reese was kind of quiet and thinking, and then she looked up and smiled at her, all of a sudden, I had this grin on her face, and she said, Mom, I'm a pastor. <laughs> and Brittany said, Oh, really? And she said, Yeah, me and dad are pastors. And that's just for free. That has nothing to do with the sermon. I just couldn't couldn't resist sharing that. So proud. Um, so, we we can all go home now, as far as I'm concerned. Starting a, an Advent series this morning, a very traditional Advent series called "People of Christmas." This is kind of a very normal church thing to do. You you go through the the characters of the. Christmas story. You know, you've got your nativity scene and you're basically putting the spotlight on the different uh, figurines in the nativity scene, these different characters looking at their particular um, angle on the Christmas story and kind of using them as a lens to try to understand Christmas better. So that's what we're doing over the the next few weeks. And this morning looking at, at Matthew 2, chapter 2, Herod. And the Magi is the title of the message, which would actually be a pretty good band name, Herod and the Magi. Um, And these two characters provide a a nice contrast to each other, which I don't think was by accident. You know, that the gospel writers knew what they were doing. So, two points, only two sections to this morning's message. We're going to look first at at Herod and then at the Magi. And the two sections are just, um, first, people who are in control respond to Christ with violence. And second, people who are desperate respond to Christ with worship. People who are in control respond to Christ with violence, and people who are desperate respond to Christ with worship. So first, people who are in control respond to Christ with violence. And this group, this in-control group, is represented first and foremost by Herod, King Herod. So a, a few words on him. Um, king is kind of a um, misnomer. Uh, he's like an appointed governor. So Israel is occupied by foreign power, Rome, and so he's you know the, the political appointee, like when uh, Britain would appoint governors over the American colonies in the early days. So, so he's kind of a, a self-styled king. Um, but he is in control. He does have control over the region. And that's why he kind of typically, predictably, when there's this announcement made to him, or a suggestion at least, that uh, a new king has been born in Israel, he, he responds um, with anger. He's, he's not happy about his control being threatened. And then, uh, you know, he he becomes this kind of Villain figure in the Christmas narrative, because he he kind of um, lashes out he he 's so angry that he kills he orders the, all the baby boys that were born in the time around the time that Jesus was born in the place that Jesus was born be killed so that 's you know twenty or thirty um, boys in that village of of Bethlehem be killed um, if just i don 't know which kid it is i don 't know which of these kids is going to be kind of take trying to take over. But we'll just wipe them all out, and then hopefully I'll I'll get the one I'm looking for. Um, So he's he's a bad guy. He's a really bad guy. But I want to push back against this kind of caricature that we have of him, of just the arch villain. You know, he's he's in the pageants. He's you know, this. he's got a pointy beard and squinty eyes. And you can hear him, uh, you know, creepy voice that's saying he, the big the big line, Herod's big line in any Christmas pageant that's supposed to send chills down your spine is when he says, um, come back and report to me where he is so I too may worship him. You know, maniacal laughter, cue the scary music. Um, you know, it's just this, this villain guy. And he is. He's a bad guy. I mean, he kills a bunch of babies. That's about as bad as it gets. So I'm not saying he's not a bad guy. But if you rush too quickly to focus all your Christmas um, condemnation on Herod, then you you miss something pretty important um, in the text. And then we'll even widen it beyond that in just a second. But in the text, if you, you remember just a second ago, uh, when Bethany was reading it, it says, When he heard the news, Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. I think the best way of reading that is just the rest of the people kind of in Herod's circle. The rest of the people that would have heard this same announcement. So the rest of the, the cultural elite, the rest of the insiders, the rest of the people that were in control. And they're upset for the same reason that Herod is upset. If you're in control, if you like the way things are, the announcement of a new king coming to town is threatening. If you like the things, the way things are, you don't want things to change, and you don't, you know, a new king means a new regime, new policies, a new order. If you like the present order, you don't want a new order. You don't want things to be upended. So it's not just Herod; it's all Jerusalem with it, with him. It's all the the rest of the cultural elites with him. They're just as bad. Herod's no worse than they are. And when we say, well, they didn't. Um, order the, the death of all these babies, Herod is kind of worse. Well, if you fast forward 30 years, Herod's attempt on Christ's life uh, ends up looking kind of prophetic and forward looking. You know, at the time he looks like, like a maniac. Like, who is this guy that's so paranoid that he would kill all these babies to try to get rid of Jesus? But if you fast forward 30 years, all of Jerusalem is still. 30 years later, still disturbed by this same guy. They're still put out by the same guy. And now they've made dozens of attempts on his life. Now they've gone to all these great lengths, great expense, great time, great effort to try to wipe out this guy that Harry could have gotten when he was a baby. So Harry could have been a hero. Harry could have been a hero if he had just gotten the job done the first time. He's not, it's not so crazy. Everybody's trying to do it 30 years later. They're disturbed. People in control are disturbed by Christ and respond to him in violence because he threatens the control they have. And this is not just, you know, obviously a, a history lesson or, you know, the you know, social dynamics in Jerusalem. I mean, that's not really what we're after here. What we're after is um, this truth to what extent each of us is in control um, over certain spheres and to what extent Christ... Authority, Christ's claim to kingship, Christ's um, desire for allegiance competes with that control. And the area we're all in control of ourselves is us. We, we control our own lives. We're captain of our own faith. And just as Jesus challenges Herod's kingship over Israel, he says, you're not the true king of Israel, I am, and that threatens Herod. In just the same way, Jesus, as he grows up, as he becomes more explicit about his claims, challenges the kingship, our kingship over our souls. He doesn't just claim to be the king of Israel. He claims to be the king of every human soul. And he says these, these crazy, ridiculous things like, um, whoever doesn't deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me can't be in my sight. Whoever doesn't hate their own father and mother in comparison to me, and follow me, they can't be to my disciple. He demands absolute allegiance. He expects you to quite willingly die for him. Follow him to the point of death. I'm king. I'm king over everybody. And that's why John Stott um, says in his, his great book, Basic Christianity, famous passage, he says, when people meet Jesus in the Gospels, and this is true today when people meet Jesus as well, there's really only three ways you can respond to Jesus. You either run away from him, in fear, you attack him in anger, or you kneel and bow before him. Those are your only three choices. You run away from him in fear, you attack him in anger, or you kneel before him and bow and worship him. Because what else can you do for a guy that's claiming authority over you? We try to ignore this today. We try to kind of block it out and pretend it's not true, but it's there. It's always there in the background. People are shopping this month, you know, whatever store buying their Christmas presents and piped in above them through the speakers, Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her King, let every heart prepare him room. It's an invasion. It's an invasion. He wants room in every heart. He's coming in, he's occupying, make room in your heart, and that's threatening. If you're in control of your own heart, if you're in control of your own life, it's extremely threatening. And the only rational response is violence. Peter says, um, the first Christian sermon ever preached, this is the day of Pentecost, after Christ has been raised and ascended into heaven. He says to the crowd, um, this Jesus whom you crucify. And, you know, most of the people there weren't in Jerusalem on the day that Jesus was put to death. Most of them had nothing directly to do with the crucifixion. But the Bible's teaching is that just the way that Herod tried to kill Jesus when he had the chance, all of us, all of us would try to kill Jesus if we had the chance. And we really understood who he is and who he claimed to be, Lord overall. People who are in control respond to Christ with violence. It's the first section of the message. The second section, we're going to totally switch gears, and it's going to seem like we're heading in an opposite direction, but hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll tie it together at the end. Hopefully. I'm actually not sure about that. But we'll see. Um, second section is, is uh, people who are desperate respond to Christ with worship. And this group of desperate people is represented by the Magi. Um, so, who are these guys? A lot of misconceptions about the Magi, um, several of which have been cemented by my least favorite Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Um, it was actually written by a, a New Yorker John Henry Hopkins he's the uh, music director in the Civil War era at General Theological Seminary up the street in Chelsea which was, used to be one of the, the premier seminaries in the US and now it's been bleeding cash for decades and they're selling off all of the buildings I, I really don't know why you needed to know that I, except <laughs> that um, We Three Kings was probably where things started heading downhill for General um so the the problem is there they there weren't 3 of them and they weren't kings. Um there weren't 3 there were 3 gifts. They give three gifts to Jesus, but they're not the gifts are like, you know, bags of things. I mean, they're not like it's not like each guy had to hold his little, you know, uh Stick of whatever. Um, so there's there's not there's not three of them. They they had crossed the whole desert. So they they were, had a caravan. They couldn't have done it with just three people. And there's they aren't kings. The Bible doesn't say anything about them being kings. We just made this king thing up at some point along the way for a reason. I have a hypothesis that I'll share in, in a second. So there's not three of them. They they they're not kings. And most importantly, they are not wise men. This is this, a flat-out bad translation that the King James used in the 1600s for this, this word that's there, and then it becomes traditional because people get really attached to Christmas. You know, it's all sentimental, and then you can't change it because people are like, well, where are the wise men? You know, I'm not going to buy this Bible. Um, so, so, so people have had to follow the King James for, for years, and it's not, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say wise men. We know now what the word means. The word is magi. The word is magi. Who are magi? What are magi? Well, it's the, it's the same root for the English word magic. And every t- other time that word magi is used in the New Testament, it's translated as uh, magician or sorcerer. So that's kind of the broader definition. Now, the more narrow definition is magi- the word magi, the root of the word, comes from the, the castle... In Persia, where a guy named Zoroaster was born, the founder of Zoroastrianism, centered in Persia, was one of the world's biggest religions at that time. So a Magi is an adherent of that religion, a Magi or a Magian. Um, and the, the, the Magi, the Zoroastrians, were known to the Middle Eastern world for two distinguishing things. They were known for their uh, commitment to astrology, and they were known for their commitment to interpreting dreams. See, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you saying that these first distinguished guests to the Christ child were some Zoroastrians from Iran? Whoops. You know, how did that happen? And so it makes a lot of sense that we, well, how can we, you know, this is embarrassing. What can we do about this? Maybe we'll, we'll, uh, we'll call them wise men. You know, that sounds, that sounds okay. We'll call them kings. Another kind of philosopher kings, and, and Plato would be proud. But, you know, God, God obviously doesn't care about that, and God obviously had something else in mind. And you've got to ask what that is. Why would God have these uh, Zoroastrians from Iran be among the first visitors to Christ. If you ask that, you all of a sudden have to start asking a series of other questions, like why would he choose Bethlehem rural village instead of Jerusalem urban center? Or why would he choose barn smelling of manure and urine instead of a palace? Or why would he choose an unwed teenage woman as the mother of Christ instead of a married, respectable woman? Or why would he choose a dirt-poor carpenter instead of a man of means? See, everything, everything about the Christmas story is a disaster. The whole thing is just a joke. It's a train wreck. It's messed up from start to finish. It's awful. And the magi just fit right in with that. Well, let's just throw some Zoroastrians in on top. I mean, why not? What the heck? It's, It's already a mess. It's a mess. The whole thing is a mess. Why does God do it that way? Just because he he likes underdogs, you know, he thinks it'll make for a good story. His favorite movies, Rudy. What is what's he what's he after? No, it's more than that. Um First Corinthians, Paul says, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He has chosen the things that are not to nullify the things that are. He has chosen the lowly things, the despised things, to put shame to the things that are high. He's doing it for a very specific reason. And the reason is he's weeding out everybody except those who are desperate enough to go for something this crazy. He's weeding out every, all the groupies, all the wannabes, all the wise, all the high, all the people who think they have it under control, and the only people that are left are the people that are desperate. And the wise men, the, oh, there you go, the Magi, the Magi were clearly desperate. I mean, why else would these guys cross a desert, spend a year traveling, following this star, to, to find this Jewish Messiah? They were desperate. They were desperate for something. And you, you compare that and contrast it with the, the Jewish scribes that they meet in Jerusalem. They've come a thousand miles They get to Jerusalem, and they say, we've been following the star. Has anybody heard about this baby? Has anybody heard about this baby that's supposed to be born around this area, around this time? And the scribes are like, oh, yeah, we know about that. It's right here. Uh, We have this book that tells us all about it. It's supposed to happen in Bethlehem. And they say, well, where's Bethlehem? And they're like, oh, it's six miles outside of town. They've gone thousands of miles. They've got six miles left to go. And you would think, you would think that one of those scribes that has the book there right in front of them, that one of them would say, hey, can I come to, can I come with you to the last six miles and see what this is? No, no. Because why? It's Magi. It's Magi. It's Bethlehem. No, no, we don't need that. People who are in control. People who are in the, on the inside People who have it together are not going to have a place for this. Because it threatens what they have. If you, if you like the way things are, you don't need Jesus. I mean, that's true. Everybody gets that. If you like the way things are, you don't need Jesus. But the desperate people, the outsiders, the people that don't really have another way of getting what they're looking for, they'll try anything. They're the ones that come and worship And that's exactly what the wise men do. Obviously, they they come, they find the Christ child, and the text says they're overjoyed, they're ecstatic, they're celebrating, and they kneel before him and worship and give him gifts. They worship because they're they're desperate. So you know, the the question is: to, to what extent are you an in control person, and to what extent are you a desperate person? And you know, if if you like the idea, maybe maybe God's tugging on your heart. You know, maybe you're an in control person. But God's tugging on your heart and, and pulling you toward him, but your in-controlness is keeping you from, from getting there. You don't have the requisite desperation to kind of make that leap. What can you do? A, a couple things. I, I, I don't really know is the first answer. You know, it's kind of a mystery how somebody gets from in-control to desperate. A, lo- a lot of things have to happen often, and, you know, it's kind of outside of our hands. But if you want to be active in it, I think just two quick things to to recognize. The first is recognize the sense in which your control is an illusion. You know, you think you're in control, um, and you are in control of certain things, but the things you're in control of, you're only in control temporarily. You're going to lose control eventually no matter what, like we've been talking about with the the giving series. Um, So it's kind of an an illusion of your own making. And when you realize that, I think it can be helpful in not responding to Christ with violence because you realize you weren't in control to begin with. And the other thing is, Find your, your place of desperation, whatever that is. So I think what's true about anybody who's in control is somewhere within them there's desperation. You know, Thoreau's famous line about we all live lives of quiet desperation. The desperation is covered up by all this other stuff, covered up by all these um, ways we like to, to tell ourselves we're in control. And if you want to come to Christ, if you want to, to worship Christ, um, you have to find that desperation underneath it, you know, whatever it is, that, that hunger that can't be satisfied, that pain that won't go away, whatever that desperation is, everybody has it there somewhere, and you have to kind of go beneath the, the in-controlness and find it. And then you, you have to get over the anger, you know, get over the anger at Christ telling you what to do and being king and coming into your life and, and taking over. But that happens um, through the cross, you know, that happens through when you see what Jesus did for you, when you see that he's willing to die for you all of a sudden you're willing to worship this king lovingly and, and um, without any resentment because you see what he was willing to do. And the, the, the last thing before we close is just that, that that whole thing about the Christmas story being such a mess and such a debacle and it's, it's all so messed up. Um, and that being to weed people out you know, that, that aren't going to go for anything except something that's crazy. Um, it points to something that's very true about, about salvation itself and the Christian framework because every other religion says you know it's for people who are in control basically every other religion is for people who are in control who say you know i can do it i can be a good person i can control my my bad desires my my bad attitudes my bad actions i can summon up my strength and try and be in control and i can attain salvation and christianity is about jesus saying no you can't no you're never going to do it you're never going to do it just be desperate just be desperate. What we say around here a lot is, um, you know, all you need is nothing, but not everybody has nothing. Just be desperate. Just have nothing. You can't do it. You'll never do it on your own. I didn't come to show you how to find God. I came as God to find you. And you're not going to get to God through what you do. You're going to get to God through what I do. So it's the whole thing, the mess, the magi, the wrong characters, the wrong cast, is pointing to something much deeper. The whole whole point is realizing that you don't have it together and that you've got to come to God for these things. In control or desperate. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for coming at Christmas. We thank you for what looks like foolishness to us at first. Just the the silliness of all of it, the wrong details and the wrong people. But we thank you for the sense in which it's a blessing, the sense in which it shows us that it's not about having it all together and it's not about being in control. It's about being desperate enough to come before you and worship and lay everything else aside and be overjoyed just to be in your presence. God, I pray that your spirit would speak to us this Christmas. I pray that for those who are in control, um, you would expose the desperateness that's been covered over. I pray that for those who are discovering that desperateness for the first time, you would lead them to Bethlehem, that you'd lead them to the manger, that you lead them to a place where they can worship you with honesty and vulnerability for the first time this
0: Christmas. And so, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.